Welcome to the Lost Roman Heroes podcast. My name is Matthew. That's the point where you say my name is. And Matthew. my name is Matteo. There no, you... it, was just, it was the build-up. Oh, okay, sorry. I didn't realize you, know? you, didn't realize you were doing a dramatic. I had the audience up. on their seats. Okay, on you the had me seats. on the edge of my seat. Together, we're diving deep into the history of Rome from its founding to its death, uncovering Rome's greatest heroes along the way and ranking them. Welcome to episode number twenty-three, Gaius Julius Caesar. Part two. Matteo. Yep. Question for you. I'm right here. How are you feeling about our friend Caesar so How far? How you feeling about Caesar? How do you feel about Caesar, man? Caesar, at this point of his life, yeah, he's like the, the, not even the second main character. He's like the third main character, you know? You know? Like, honestly, yeah. my personal favorite part of last episode was yeah. Claudius. Yeah. That guy was such a G. Yeah. You know, he, he hasn't really done anything of note. Uh, that's a lie. But he's done a couple things, but nothing that's really like, wow, that's guys Julius Caesar yeah. right there. And he's 40. Yeah. You know? He's supposed to be one-third through his lifespan. Yeah. One-third. Well, up to 60. That's usually when... Yeah, but that would to. be... 40 out of 60 is how much? Two-thirds. Yeah. <laughs> Holy <laughs> crap! Listen, I would expect this if you were coming off summer break or something, but you're in the middle of the academic year. <laughs> I've been gone from school for too long. It's Christmas break. I it's haven't applied my head. It's taken a toll. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I agree with you. I'm usually the guy that's good at math. You are. You're that guy. You're that guy. You're just going through. It's a patch. Holy it's just crap. a patch. It's not a biggie. I agree with you, though. I feel that way, that Caesar has been sort of a player in the shadows, not the main character in the story so just the guy that wants to be epic yeah but he's just like a little sissy wait waiting for a shot right he starts when, crying when he realizes yeah. how much he hasn't accomplished and and he, yeah because he, he feels like he's destined for big things but he hasn't had the opportunity yet right he's going to get them in a short in a short mm-hmm. period of time in the background mateo this is what i hear and feel because this is truly end of day stuff for the republic and it's We've talked Star Wars through many episodes and the similarities. Right. And I have a question for you before we get going, which is, you know, who is Caesar in Star Wars? I mean, he's not, not Palpatine, right? Palpatine's the guy pulling the strings right, at the end of the Republic and, and truly evil. Maybe he's Qui-Gon. Qui-Gon Jinn, really? He, he, he wasn't really, because Qui-Gon, you know, he wasn't really... <laughs> Sticking uh, with all the orders and rules of the Jedi Council. Mm-hmm. He was very powerful, and he wanted to raise the Chosen One, a.k.a. Augustus. Um, ah, and he was silenced by his Augustus. enemies. He was silenced by his enemies. Augustus is Anakin? Well, not really. Well, maybe Augustus is more like Luke. Okay, yeah. so then maybe Caesar's Anakin, you know? Maybe Caesar's Anakin. But maybe. Uh, he doesn't turn as evil as Anakin, I don't think. Because I, well, th- I don't really think Caesar turns evil. Well, let's see. He's just very anti-institution. We, we have a couple more episodes to get into what made Caesar tick and, and what he actually did. But regardless, we have this in our heads. Bum, 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 ba-dum, bum, ba-dum. Mm-hmm. The collapse of the Republic is very near, Matteo. You can feel it. You can taste it. It's in the air. And the rise of empire is upon us. Soon. <laughs> 
But let's jump back into Caesar's story. So we ended up last episode, Mateo, with Caesar sitting outside the Pomerium. Just got back from Gaul. Knew the Senate was gunning for him, guys like Cato the Younger. He was entitled to a triumph, but he really wanted the consulship. Right. Because he was playing the long game. So Cato had played to Caesar's ego, hoping he would choose triumph over consulship. But Caesar, Caesar, so difficult to pin down Caesar. Just when you think that, I know what that dude's going to do. He does the opposite. And he chose power this time. Right. So he crossed the Pomerium, foregoing the triumph, and he threw his hat in for the consulship. And it was the year 60 BC, 40 years old. The campaign for consul, this, this is the campaign to be consul in the year of 59, so the next year. Pompey was supporting Caesar, Matteo, because Caesar had supported Pompey in the past, during the pirate wars, tit for tat. And Crassus, for a long time, had been a buddy of Caesar, so he was supporting Caesar as well. So you had the two most powerful dudes in Rome who are supporting you. Plus, the followers of Cinna and Marius loved Caesar. And there is no surprise, Matteo, so Caesar won. Okay. He became... The guy that has done nothing in his entire life won. Just made it to consul the highest position in the land. Okay. And one of the first things he did after his election was to bring Pompey and Crassus together as friends. And that is where the triumvirate begins. Well, didn't I thought he had a secret meeting with them. Yeah, they, yeah, they had secret meetings. No, but didn't... You remember he told... Isn't the story that he told um, Pompey to come to this specific spot in Rome to have a meeting about Crassus, and he told Crassus the same thing? And then when they both got there, they saw each other and Caesar... I think you're probably right. Actually, I, I don't know for a fact. But or maybe that's saying, just what Rome HBO is telling me. <laughs> I don't know. I'm yeah. not certain. But it, it may be true. It may be true. So this was a secret alliance between the three most powerful men in Rome, but it really wasn't secret for long. Like The whole idea that secret triumvirate is, is there was no secret. Because as Plutarch says, as soon as Caesar had been triumphantly elected, along with his co-consul, Matteo, Calpurnius Bibulus, and had entered upon his office... He proposed laws which were becoming, not for a consul, but for a most radical tribune of the people. For to gratify the multitude, he introduced sundry allotments and distributions of land. So, in other words, he got this power, and he wasn't dignified about it. You're a consul, you're supposed to be dignified. And instead, this guy started giving handouts to the little man in the street, which is very much a thing that a tribune of the plebs would do. Of the various things that he proposed, Matteo, were land grants to Pompey soldiers. Remember Pompey? I didn't rip it. Don't worry. I was that, shaving the tiger. That, okay, that's a, that is a good way to rip the brand new shirt. Continue. Okay. <laughs> land grants for Pompey soldiers, ratifying Pompey's treaties in the east, cutting taxes for Asian landholders that owed Crassus money. So... A lot of guys owed Crassus money, but they couldn't pay they him couldn't because pay they him. had to pay taxes. So Crassus had Caesar propose to cut their taxes so they would have money to pay back oh, Crassus. What a thoughtful guy. Isn't that nice of him? Uh, handouts to the, po- the poor on Rome streets. And in addition, the governorship of Cisalpine Gaul for Caesar after his year as consul was over. It was a tidy little package. And Caesar presented it to the Senate... And most weren't against it, but Cato the Younger, the guy that hated Caesar. And it's crazy how similar he was to the Cato the Elder that opposed Scipio Africanus, no? Yeah. He ran a filibuster so that Caesar's package of laws couldn't get passed. 
because he hated Caesar, and he hated the man in the street. He hated the populars. He was all about the optimates and the dominance That's why he got the trolled Senate. by Claudius. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. So the Senate was more or less against this at this point, and, and, and they worried that... It was getting out of hand here. Yeah, that things were getting out of hand. However, Caesar mm-hmm. had a backup plan, the assembly of the plebs. They had the ability to pass laws. So Caesar shows up at the assembly of the plebs. Which is not common for uh, a, consul a consul to do. No. Nope. And you know what's even less common? What, for them to talk? When he showed up, Pompey was standing on one side and Crassus was standing on his other side. So these three guys just walked in like the big school bullies. Yes. Guys, please approve this. It's good for you. We'll make it worth your while. Mobsters. Yeah. Hey, how's about you go and pass this law? Yeah. Huh? We'll, we'll make it worth your while. <laughs> huh? Capiche? <laughs> exactly. And so the assembly of the plebs said, uh-huh, we'll do it. And they did it. And just to make certain, Mateo, that there were no issues of the passage of the law, Pompey, Mafia Don, floods the streets with his goons, through Claudius, of course, to make certain that everything went smoothly and the Senate didn't mess around. It's funny, because the only one of these guys that was actually... Wait, was Crassus a patrician? He was, right? Crassus, no, he was a, he was a pleb. So the, all three of these guys were basically plebs. Not Caesar. I mean... Caesar well, was a patrician. He was just a brokey. He yeah. was a broke patrician. So Caesar's co-consul, Matteo Biblis, didn't like any of this stuff. And in theory, you need your co-consul to go along. But he was physically intimidated by the street goons, so much so that he retired to his home... And he stayed there for the rest of his consulship. Sorry about that. Yeah, sorry. That was phone phone ring. Biblis went home, locked himself indoors, didn't come out for the rest of his consulship because he didn't want to get killed. That's nice. Yeah. It, it was. It, by the way, now it's marriage time because Romans love nothing more than good political marriages. So this is the moment, Matteo, when Caesar had his daughter, Julia, break off her engagement. She was engaged to be married. Okay. And he had her marry Pompey. Right. And we and it was a happy marriage. That was a happy, happy marriage. And Caesar married a girl named Calpurnia. That's a nice name. Pompey reminds me of, of Henry VIII. A little bit. Yeah, a little bit. Uh, Caesar married a girl named Calpurnia. This is marriage number three, I think. He, right. she, she was the daughter of a guy named Piso, who was a powerful senator. And Caesar had Piso made consul for the next year. Give me your daughter. I'll, I'll make you consul. The deal was sealed. It was an unholy alliance. Is this a Palpatine, Dooku, Anakin alliance? No. Because Dooku, I think, is sort of Crassus. But Pompey is not really Palpatine. I don't know. I don't know, because Dooku... I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Well, listen. I know that we have warm fuzzies about Caesar a little bit, and maybe you more than me. But, so great. but these guys were definitely not acting in the best interests of what used to be the Republic. But they were acting in the interests of the people, which isn't that the duty of the Republic? I know. Isn't that like popular demagogues? Isn't that what they all say? Isn't that what Putin says and Chavez said and but Mao no, says? the people don't like Putin, though. Mm. I actually don't know about that. I don't know. Hmm. Anyways, something to think about. I'll leave you with one last little tidbit, Matteo, from the year 59 BC, right? This is the year of Caesar's consulship. Caesar also passed, Matteo, a package, you're going to like this, 
a package of anti-corruption laws. Mateo is on Snapchat. No, I'm not. I'm, I'm just calling it out. back my teacher. You're on your right, so teacher. You <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Your teacher. Like, Yo, you got that homework done? <laughs> and I was like, nah. So, right, so Caesar passed a package of um, anti-corruption laws okay. called the Lex Julia Repetundas. So I don't understand. He's a hypocrite. <laughs> yes. Okay. Maybe remember, like Sula tried to change laws so that no, there could be no Sula in the future. Right. Maybe that's what Julius Caesar was doing here. The Lex Julia Repetundas is the is the Julius law against corruption. It prohibited public officials from taking bribes, and it would stay in effect, Matteo, until the reign of Justinian the Great. Which basically means it didn't work. Well. Because yeah, because there would be bribery. There was yeah, so much corruption. Yeah, there was corruption, but I guess yes, that's true. It was a lot on the books until Justinian the Great, and then Justinian took it and incorporated it into his massive accomplishment, the Corpus Juris Civilis, which is a compilation of all Roman law since the dawn of the Republic. We'll talk about it when we get to Justinian's episode. My point is, it was a hell of an accomplishment. Yeah, from a guy that was known for being a serial breaker and briber. Uh, it's like it's like when mafiosos tried running for like governor and senator yeah. and stuff. Yeah, trying to right. get into politics. It's like when Pablo Escobar tried getting into politics. Yeah, or you know, listen, JFK's dad had a very shady past, and JFK, you know, and and Bobby. Well, we know their story. Bobby's That's, a G, but I agree with you. I always like Bobby more than JFK. When fifty-eight dawned, Mateo, this is Caesar is now. Mateo's phone's ringing. In 58 BC, Mateo, Caesar is now done with his uh, consulship. He hung around town a couple extra months to make certain that his anti-corruption law was implemented, and then he marched to Gaul, Mateo. To Gaul? Caesar in Gaul. Caesar in Gaul, but Caesar was appointed to the governorship of Cisalpine Gaul. Because there was no province, Mateo, called of Gaul. Gaul. Yeah. Gaul basically just meant the barbarians. Gaul, Gaul meant the barbarians. And Cisalpine Gaul was basically like the border to the bar- barbarians. Was the Roman province south of the Alps. And there was another Roman province called Transalpine Gaul, which is basically the south of France today. Right. As he was marching to Cisalpine Gaul to take over his governorship, the governor of Transalpine Gaul died and the Senate gave that to Caesar as well. So he was governor of Transalpine and Cisalpine Gaul as 58 BC got underway. So he was holding that front. He was. And if you go, Monteo, to our website, www.lostromanheroes.com, you're going to see a map, which I have taken some artistic liberties with, okay. to show you what what was Gaul. And Gaul in that map, Monteo, was basically everything shaded in yellow, it was bits of modern Germany, Belgium, and essentially all of modern France. And Caesar had under his command or control the stuff shaded in green. Aquitania was also a province? Uh, Aquitania was... Aquitania. Aus- it, 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 w- it would become. I, I think at this point when Caesar is marching west, it's also part of kind of the Celtic lands. I probably should have shaded that in yellow as well. Okay. Yeah. So... Gaul, this area, is populated with Celtic tribes. And you and I both remember the last time Rome had been sacked, right? 
mm-hmm. in 390 BC. We talked about it in the episode of Camillus. It was sacked by a, a tribe of Gauls called the Senones, who were led by Brennus. Right. Who was the guy who look, looked like he was from Asgard. Yeah, I do remember that. Right. And then in 109 BC, we saw the Gauls again. This is 280 years later. Marcus Marius became a superhero. Well, because, 271. Okay. Ooh, you're trying to claw <laughs> your way back out of the hole. Nicely done. Marius became a superhero because he defeated a Gaul invasion of Italy. Remember? Right. So these guys that have been causing trouble for the Romans for 400 years are still out there. Yeah, they've just been chilling in the woods and, you know, but periodically but, coming in and just kicking the sandcastles down. All right, so you just said something interesting, chilling in the woods. They actually weren't in the woods. Like, what you just said is how the Romans described these guys. They were brutes. But they weren't. They had their own societies. Yeah. Cities. Yes. Exactly. I don't know if they had written languages. They, they, they did. I think they did. They had ruins, right? They did. Yeah. They, they were pretty sophisticated. They had cities, as you said. They had art. They had culture. Some tribes of Gauls or some cities, Gaul cities, were actually organized as republics. Hmm. They had growing urbanization. But they, did they have stone walls? They had very much had stone walls. Did they yeah. have indoor heating? Uh, no, that I don't think they had yeah, indoor okay. heating. Okay. Or I don't think they had functioning toilets or things like that. But... They traded with, with Rome as well, but they were still, Matteo, at their heart, 400 years later, very much a warrior culture. And so the Roman army was all about infantry and coordinated action and discipline. And these guys were just grab club. They were all about cavalry, long swords, and individual acts of bravery. For them, you were a coward if you fought in kind of organized formation. Right, you just had to go crazy. Yeah, 100%. You need to go that you know what crazy Uh uh-huh by the way they were also taller than romans on average so they were taller than romans plus they had long swords and long hair which was an advantage in battle because they had more they had more reach sometimes they even fought naked so you're 100 percent right yeah sometimes they fought naked which i was thinking about that today that would that's uncomfortable right why would you run like the chafing i think just running yeah would be uncomfortable right yeah it doesn't feel very good no you would need some things to kind of keep keep things certain things in place it definitely reeked well yeah you can imagine these were smelly guys um they had no central government. That was definitely one distinguishing factor. They, this was a tribal uh, civilization civilization still, and that would be their great weakness because they, they weren't coordinated. Um, and so, anyways, Matteo, there was one tribe of Celts, okay, called the Helveti. Does that ring a bell? The Helveti? That does. Yeah. They, they were based in Switzerland, Matteo. So, that, so that, was, on, that was part of On the all. doorstep. Yeah. Uh, right around Lake Geneva. That was their homeland. But okay. the Helveti for a long time were having a rough time of it, Matteo, because they were being pressured by Germanic tribes coming down from the north. And these guys were sick and tired of it. Sick and tired of, of the, the Germans who were probably even bigger the than them. Probably even bigger with longer hair. It's and, just the and, French versus yeah. the Germans. The French yeah. have always, yeah. French <laughs> have always <laughs> lost. They've always lost. So these guys, the Helveti, decided to migrate. You know what? F it. You guys can have... Lake Geneva. Au revoir. It's, a, it's au revoir. Uh, uh, it's, it's just like the lake isn't, isn't all, all that, yeah, that yes. special. Screw Geneva and all yeah. those fancy stores. Yeah, and the chocolate. Yeah, and then all the chocolate, yeah. Uh, enough is enough. So he, they picked up their entire people, Monteo, which was something like 400,000 people, and they marched down the mountains into Gaul. Uh, according to Caesar, they were about 400,000 people, men, women, children, of the 400,000, 100,000 and change were fighting men. 
And because they were civilized little barbarians, they asked Caesar, sent ambassadors to Caesar saying, may we please have permission to enter Gaul? Yeah, right. And Caesar said, you know what? Interesting question. Give me a little time. Then he started raising troops. Because <laughs> you just stay right there. Yeah, I'll be Not back fact, in a jiffy. Put yourself in this little ravine right yeah. here, please. Because remember, just because he was governor of Cisalpine Gaul didn't mean that he was given consular legions to start, you know. The Senate needs to specifically say, we're sending you somewhere to wage war. And they hadn't said that to Caesar. They said, we're sending you here to govern. So Caesar raises troops, Matthew, around 30,000 soldiers, and then he sent word back to the Helveti saying that, no, actually, I've thought about it. You can't come in. But the Helveti said, we're coming anyways, dude. This is going to happen. So Caesar is sitting there with 30,000 men watching from a hilltop as the Helveti start crossing the river Saon into Gaul. He let two-thirds of the Helvet, the nation of the Helveti, because these aren't just warriors. It's yeah, it's, a like, nation. it's like how Native Americans are nations. Yes. So he let this nation cross, two-thirds of it cross, and then he fell upon the third that had not yet crossed the river, mm-hmm. and he destroyed them while their people looked on, <laughs> on from the across the river. river. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's pretty messed up. Yeah, it's pretty messed up. It's like you're watching, it's like you're in a car, and you see a, a family of ducks walking by, yeah. and then you let them walk by all cute, and just when the last one's you about run to over get by, them. you run over <laughs> That's terrible. But it is a lot like that. Caesar ran over the duck, the last duck. Mm-hmm. And by the way, that was illegal, because, again, the Senate had not told him to wage war. But Caesar so he's didn't acting like a warlord right now. Yeah, big time, acting like a warlord. Then he crosses the river, Monteo, right? And the two forces met at a Celtic hilltop fort because Gaul was spotted at this point with hilltop fortresses, which were built with stone. This one was called Bibracte, and it's somewhere in eastern France, Matteo, close to Dijon. If you go to our website, www.lostomeros.com, so I love Dijon mustard. It's so nasty. I love Dijon mustard. You're weird. I put it on everything. Yeah, I know. It's gross. You put it on my sandwiches all the time. <laughs> don't eat them. <laughs> I'm sorry. Anyways... The site of this battle is near the modern town of Autun. And if you look on our website, you'll see a map of, of the location of Autun. It's somewhere southeast of Paris. Okay. So this consisted of 40,000 Roman soldiers, Matteo, about 100,000 Helveti soldiers, plus another 300,000 tribes, people, kids and women and the elderly. Who definitely could throw, throw some hands. I'm sure they could. Caesar occupied the hilltop. The Helveti tried attacking up the hill. Which is, what was Obi-Wan's first rule of battle? Uh, never give up the high ground. Never. Or don't attack the high ground. Don't attack the high ground. It was a long and bloody battle. The Romans started slowly pushing down the hill, Matteo. And their discipline, despite the fact that they were massively outnumbered, won the day. And supposedly, of the 100,000 warriors, only about 10,000 survived. No way. Yes. I don't believe that. Those numbers are a little inflated. Okay, the issue is, yeah, the, the, the numbers all come from Caesar because the Helvetii... 100,000 people. First of all, a nation of 400,000 people yeah. is kind of crazy in itself. Yes. That's literally half of Rome. Yeah. So... Yeah, it's true. I don't know. That's it's true. true. Well, the numbers all come from Caesar, right? Because the Helvetii didn't stay around to write histories. No. So I'm sure there's inflation in all these numbers. And there's I, I've read many people have dedicated their academic careers Especially to trying to figure out Especially since if the Helvetii were all chilling in the Lake of Geneva, so make this one of the biggest provinces in the world. Like, yeah, right. I don't know. I don't know either. But 
the only numbers we have are Caesar's numbers. So let's just say whatever the number was, 90% were killed. Uh, Caesar's men were so exhausted, they let these remaining 10,000 plus the women and children kind of move on. And then they pursued them, captured them, and the Helveti begged for mercy. And Caesar gave it to them. He said, okay, fine. I'm going to let you live, but you need to return to Switzerland. Go back to the lake, eat your chocolate. Yeah. <laughs> these poor people are like yeah. all traumatized. Yeah. Huh? <laughs> and so they limped back home. And Caesar had sent a signal to the world. This is not going to be your grandmother's governorship of Cisalpine Gaul. Uh, I'm not Caesar's waiting for... Caesar's in town. Caesar's in town. I don't need a casus belli. I'm going to war. Yep. Right. And on our website, Mateo, there's another cool map of the Caesar's campaigns in Gaul, which gives you a sense of where each uh, campaign was, was located against each of the principal tribes. Uh, you can find it at www.lostromanheroes.com. Nice. So... We have more trouble brewing with... By the way, one last thing about that battle against the Helvetai. The tribes of Gaul actually loved Caesar after that. Because yeah, because they this tribe was basically a foreign invasion, if it, you think yeah. about it. Yeah, yeah. Foreign invasion. You're 100% right. So these guys were going to come, and they were going to eat our fruits and vegetables and, and, and grains, and etc. And thank you, Caesar. You protected us. Yeah, W. Caesar. Yeah, they're like he's gonna. They're gonna love him for like five more minutes. <laughs> exactly. That's exactly right. They're gonna love him for five more minutes. This is the end of the left. Right. It's about to come. North of the Rhine, Matteo, there was another tribe of foreigners, Germanic tribe, those Germans. Uh, the Swabi. They're a big one. Yeah, they're a big one. The Swabi. They were one hundred and twenty thousand warriors, in addition to the rest of the people. So this is a big tribe led by their king, Ariovistus. That's an awesome name. It's an incredible name. And in 58 BC, Ariovistus looked south across the Rhine and saw a tasty little treat that was Gaul. But there was a little problem. He had previously signed a treaty with the Romans. So he wasn't a client king, but he, he had an understanding with Rome. Right. And he didn't care a hoot about the understanding. He started moving troops. But, but at the same time, Gaul is not a Roman province. So he's right. thinking, whatever. Yeah, this, this is their backyard. I could play yeah, in the backyard. This is not Rome's business. He started moving his troops south across the Rhine. And this is right after Caesar's win over the Helvetai. And Caesar, as we said, is super popular with the tribes of Gaul for five minutes. And the tribes of Gaul came to Caesar and said, Hey, buddy, you really helped us out a couple minutes ago with the Helvetai. Could you help us out with the Suevi? And there he had his Casus Belli. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Let me move troops into Gaul now. Yeah, yeah. I, I can help, guys. I can help. He just needed to be able to write back to the Senate and say, guys, I had some justification for wiping out an entire race of human beings. Uh, even though you didn't authorize me to wage war in Gaul, they asked and I had to do something. They asked? What was I supposed they asked, to do? Exactly. It wasn't my fault. So Caesar marched Matteo east to a place called Vesontio, which is modern Besançon. Uh, yeah, French town? Besançon. Yeah, it's a French town. Your uncle actually spent... Uh, I think like a year there in a study Juan? abroad. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, you did. Good one, Juan. Yeah. Good one, Juan. Hopefully Juan is going to listen to this and hear the shout out to Juan. We, well, if he doesn't say anything, we know. <laughs> well, no, it's actually, that. we just laid a little trap yeah. for Juan. <laughs> At any rate, he gets to Visantio and Ariovistus invited Caesar to a parley. But with some strict conditions. Caesar, you can come with a small group of soldiers and they have to be mounted. They have to be cavalry, no infantry. And you and I both know that the Roman cavalry was not particularly good, right? Yeah. At this point. It wasn't their strength. 
Um, so Caesar meets with the king. And while they were meeting, Caesar's men came under attack. Like not an overwhelming attack, but they were being kind of peppered with, with uh, I don't know, let's say skirmishing. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Some, some, some pebbles, we could say. So some little pebbles some were being slingers. thrown. Some Yeah, maybe some little slingers. Caesar, so this was a violation of the truce because there was a truce while they were having this parlay, but Caesar refused to engage. Like he wasn't going to give right. Ariovistus an excuse to come all out. Ariovistus in the conversation was annoyed. Like he didn't really want to negotiate. He said that he had a letter from the Roman Senate saying the Senate wouldn't mind if he took out Caesar, like wiped out Caesar because Caesar had broken the law. This went on for a while. And then Caesar received Matteo a spy from the camp of Ariovistus because Caesar couldn't understand why isn't this dude making a move? But apparently the seers of the Suevi, the guys that read the entrails, the witches or whatever they were, yeah. they were telling Ariovistus that the gods, they read the entrails and the entrails said that the gods didn't think it was time for battle yet. Mm. So Caesar knew that he had to move fast, right? He had, he had a chance, but he had to attack quickly and he did. So he moved up, he attacked uh, the the key charge, Matteo, of this attack was led by a young man named Publius Crassus. Publius Crassus? Son of... Crassus Crassus? And this dude also died at Carhai. So he was the guy that was... So he probably wasn't... But I thought he, he probably wasn't that sharp. He actually... Militarily. He apparently was. Caesar loved him. The people of Rome loved him. He was a rising star in the Roman army. So why army. did he do something so stupid? So stupid? Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. Glory, dude. The, the, the thirst for glory. Caesar destroyed Ariovistus' Ariovistus's army, Matteo. Um, the Suevi retreated back across the Rhine, and they would never bother Gaul or the Romans again. The Gauls, <laughs> right around this time, Matteo realized... Like, Woo! This guy's awesome. Yeah, this guy's awesome. So like, why is he not See you later. Him? You're going yeah. home now, right? All right. Yeah. Caesar's just go- reaching in for another piece of bread. <laughs> exactly. Wait, damn it. He's not going home. Caesar had no intent of going home. And the Gauls finally started to wake up to the fact that Rome was not going anywhere. And so tr- the tribes of Gaul started piecemeal at first, teaming up to try to force the Romans out. Uh... And what happens, Matteo, over the next eight years has been called by many an act of genocide conducted by Caesar. And we can't really paper it over. Many hundreds of thousands or even over a million Gauls lay dead at the end of Caesar's eight-year Gallic War. A war that was never legally authorized by the Senate. Oh, yeah, and also in Alessia when he killed all the people that were sent over to Crescent. Yeah. So how do we, you know, how do you, how do we make sense of that? When we're talking about heroism, and we'll get there I mean, at the end of Caesar's episode. So it's just something that we have to acknowledge here, that every Roman that we've covered so far is, sees these men as inferior to them. Even yes. Scipio would see them as inferior to them. I don't think Scipio saw the Carthaginians as inferior. Well, the Carthaginians and if you look is different, because the, the Carthaginians them, is also a sophisticated They were high, a high civilization. But you're right. I'm talking about these guys? Yeah, you're right. Well, I just wanted to plant the seed. We'll talk about it more when we sum him up at the end of his three episodes. So the next battle, Matteo, was the battle against the Nervi. And we saw that last episode. The Nervi and the Atrebati set up an ambush. They attacked Caesar before he could properly set up camp on the River Sambra. And Caesar made a, a tactical error here. He started building camp, but didn't set up a screen, an infantry screen, to protect the guys that were setting up the camp. 
the Nervi fell upon the Romans, 60,000 enemies, and things looked so dire at one point that Caesar grabbed a shield and jumped into the front line to fight the enemy, and he would probably have lost had Labinus and the 10th Legion not returned to action and broke the enemy So line. was Labinus like, kind of like the, the, the centurion of the 10th? Like the lead centurion of the well, he he was he was the legate of the entire army, but the tenth was directly under his control. The tenth so, was Caesar's favorite, right? Okay, legion. Anyways, thanks to Labinus, the enemy was routed, and the Belgic tribes would never be a problem again. And the Senate in Rome granted fifteen days of thanksgiving uh, to to honor this victory, the longest ever granted by the Senate. And Caesar's reputation is now skyrocketing at home, even though that could have been a massive bloodbath and a disaster. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Labinus, thanks to Labinus, he turned it around and it was a victory. Then in 56 BC, and he Mateo, wrote that, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. he did. He, yeah, he wrote about Labinus and acknowledged his con- contribution. Next year, he goes to war against the Veneti, another Gaulish tribe in Normandy. These were seafaring Gauls. They s- had boats with sails on them. They were super successful at first. Caesar built up a fleet. The Roman fleet had ships with oars. They didn't use sails, but they had grappling hooks. And Wait, so, but I thought the Greeks and the Carthaginians had sails on their on their triremes. They they did, but the Romans were. But the Romans copied the Carthaginian ship design. Did the right? Carthaginians have sails, Matteo? I don't think what? they did. I ro- what, man, that doesn't make sense. I don't know. I don't think they were rowing the entire Mediterranean. Okay, okay. all I know is, I don't know. We need to look this up. But during this battle against the Veneti, the Roman ships did not have sails. They were oars only, but they used their right. grappling hooks. So just this Roman fleet, but the Carthaginians At least this one. And the, and the Greeks, and I'm pretty much assuming the Romans had sails too. Because didn't the Romans copy the ship design? They designs? did. They copied the ship design of the Carthaginians. They did, absolutely, in the first Punic War. Right, so I guess Caesars just didn't have sails. We're gonna, I'm going to need to do some more research on that, and I'll, get it. I'll address it in the next episode if you remind me. At any rate, they were able to defeat the Veneti because they used grappling hooks to shred the sails, pull the guys alongside, and kill them. So right around this time, Matteo, Caesar returned very briefly to Italy for a special little secret conference. This is a secret conference at a town called Lucca. You've been to Lucca. Lucca, yeah, that's the Di Lucca. That's where um, Duchess Matilda's from. Where? Uh, Duchess Matilda of the House Canossa. Um, they're from Tuscany, and they're from Lucca. Where did you pull that out of? Crusader Kings 3. Are you serious? Yeah. <laughs> That's really cool. Di Luca. Di Luca. I had no idea. But you've been to Luca. You were there as a young boy. That's the Canossa family. We, we met, went and met a friend of mine there and hung out for the day in Luca. Yeah, the Canossa family were, they were from Luca. Matteo, I have no clue what you're talking about. You Duchess just taught Matilda. me something. Okay, I had no clue. Never heard of her before. She's a very famous, she's like the first Italian, true Italian ruler. Yeah? Yeah. Well... Again, you taught me something. I had no idea. Holy Roman Empire. So at Lucca, Caesar met with Crassus and Pompey, the triumvirs, and they came to an agreement. Their relationship was fraying a little bit, but but this sort of restored the bonds of, if not friendship, their agreement. They just kicked back, watched some football. Yeah. And everybody got a little something. Caesar would get five more years as governor of Gaul. Crassus Pompey would be consuls for 55 and afterwards, Crassus would get Syria. Yay! Yay! Not. <laughs> Yay, Syria! Yay, not. And Pompey would get Hispania in, in absentia because he didn't actually intend on leaving Rome to go to Hispania because he was old and lazy at this point. 
Yeah, he was just chilling in the Senate house trying to win over all the senators. Yeah, and having fun being married to a thirty a wife 30 years younger, who is Caesar's daughter. <laughs> then, Mateo, in 55 BC, Caesar is looking at his fellow triumvirs and saying, you know what? I think I need to, I need to up the ante. I mean, we're, we're sort of equal, but we're not really equal because Pompey, man, he's Pompey. And Crassus, richest man on the planet. Right. I need to do something a little more spectacular to raise my profile. And he does some cool stuff. In 55 BC, Mateo, there are some Germanic Celtic tribes, uh, the Usipites and the Tenctari, that decided to cross the Rhine. And they asked Caesar for permission to settle. Hey, there's all this open land here that you've killed all the yeah. people that lived here. Mind if we take it? Yeah, come on. Yeah. We're, we're nice yeah. guys. That's my land. And that's what Caesar said. Don't think so. So they sent a small little cavalry force, Mateo, of 800 riders, and they attacked a Roman auxiliary force of Gaul riders that were fighting on behalf of Rome. 5,000 men. 800 men attacked 5,000 men and defeated them. Listen, that's the Germans versus the French, okay? I'm sorry. I'm sorry to our French viewers. I'm sorry to our oh, no. French viewers. Oh, no. That's just a tale as old as time. Oh, no. It, right? it does seem to be a tale as old as time. And... Uh, that's, that's, these are the facts according to Caesar. So Caesar responded by attacking the Usipites and the Tenctory. And according to Caesar, again, they didn't write histories about what happened. Right. But according to history, uh, Caesar, he killed 430,000 of them. Mm-hmm. Sure he did. Yeah. <laughs> I and, promise, there were so many. Yeah. Did you count them? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I counted so the, whatever the number was, Mateo, this bloodbath was so brutal that in the Senate, he was accused of war crimes by some, and some wanted to prosecute him when he no longer had imperium. In other words, the second he was no longer governor, he no longer had that legal immunity. He, they wanted to prosecute him right. for barbarism, basically, for genocide. Right. So This might be the... So this could be one of the biggest genocides in history if we really went, went and counted yes. every single number yes. that he said. Th- that's m- many people, many scholars have devoted their careers to kind of trying to unpeel this, unravel the onion on this one and ha- have accused Caesar of having committed genocide in Gaul. At any rate, these tribes, as you can imagine, what was left of them, they retreated back across the Rhine. But Caesar wasn't done with them, Matteo. He could have pursued them across the Rhine in the old-fashioned way. Let's get some little boats, and we'll ferry ourselves across. Yeah, but he was like, hold on. Let me make this more difficult yeah. for my men. Yeah. Let's, let's go big here. Go big or go home. So what did Caesar do? He built a very big bridge to cross the Rhine. And he built that bridge, Matteo, using Roman pile drivers. And there's an image on our website, www.lostromanheroes.com, of a reproduction of one of those pile drivers that Caesar's engineers built to drive piles into the riverbed to be able to erect a bridge that was 30 feet wide, Matteo, and Damn. up to an estimated 1,400 feet Holy. long. Holy, and the Rhine is big and ever-changing. <clears throat> it, it big, big and swiftly flowing. There were towers built at either end of this bridge for defense. He put extra piles upriver to protect things from floating into his bridge and, and, and attack. And Caesar described the construction of the bridge in detail in his letters. So we have a pretty good idea of what it looked like. And most incredibly, Mateo, it took 10 days. And 10 days later, he marched his 40,000-man army across the bridge, 
burned and pillaged the countryside. You for can two imagine weeks. how the men felt, by the way. <laughs> yeah, like freaking heroes. Yeah. Needless to say, the Germanic tribes did not come out to play. They hid deep in the forests. Uh, and then Caesar marched across the bridge and burnt it just because he could. So it wasn't a big strategic win, but man, was it dramatic. And the message it sent was, no one can hide. Yeah. So. That same year, Matteo, this is still 55 BC. This is the year where he ups the ante in terms of drama. Caesar made the first Roman crossing of the English Channel. Huge publicity Wow. Style. Yeah. Yeah. So he just disembarked from the mainland. He just, just did for the that. faint island they could see across the channel. On August 23rd of 55, he took two legions on ships and crossed the channel. But I'm assuming Romans had... Is he the first Roman to ever step foot on the English? No, I assume you're right. Because uh, the thing there, is, that wouldn't make sense. No, there would be Romans that have made the crossing, but it's the first time there they was know an about organized, the organized crossing with a Roman legion. Right. With the intent of subduing Britannia. And, and because the Romans consider Britannia the end of the, the end of the world. Right. He arrived on the shores of Kent Matteo, saw Britain's organized resistance waiting for him on the, on the beach. And How did they know he was coming? I don't know. I, I assume the Gauls, uh, because the, the Gauls and, and the Britons were in contact. So he moved a little further up the coast mm-hmm. and supposedly landed in a place called Pegswell Bay in Kent. Archaeologists have discovered evidence there of Roman fort dating to more or less that year. But Caesar arrived there with a weak force. It was only two legions. And it really could have been a disaster. Did he take the time? I, I don't think... No, I think he left his main legions back in in, in uh, Gaul under the command of Labinus. This guy was so, like... What, what's it called again when you're always so positive looking? Not yeah. pessimistic, the opposite. Yeah, optimistic. Optimistic, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he was just... He was rolling the dice. He was just going up to the soldiers. He was like... Yeah. They were freezing their butts off. This is yeah. their first campaign ever. Yeah. He was like, let's go, yeah. guys! Yeah. And they're just yeah. there like, oh my God, this guy. He's like, he's, he's like one of those guys that makes his own luck. Yeah. yeah. So he got there, and I think he realized, whoa, I didn't really know what I was getting myself into. He hadn't done sufficient scouting, but somehow he made it work. He made this big show of negotiating uh, treaties with the local tribes, and then he very quickly got back on boats. Yeah, he's like, they were all like 100,000 yeah. men were there yeah. waiting for him. He's like, hey, yeah, hey, I just came to talk. Hi. He's like, guys, put your swords away. Put your swords <laughs> away. And he sailed back to, to Gaul and wrote a letter to the Senate saying, guys, you have died. You can't imagine what I just did. I just took our legions to the end of the world, to Britannia. And what did the Senate do? They granted him 20 days of Thanksgiving this time. Damn. But he just got there and he was like, guys, 300,000 Britons waiting for him. Yeah. And he was just like, uh, yeah. and they're like, what do you want to? He's like, I, uh, I just came to say that the weather here, yeah. is the weather is amazing. Really nice. The greatest. It's like the Penguin movie. Smile and wave, boys. Smile <laughs> and wave. You can just like, they were smiling and waving. They pulled on these maneuvers. Like a drive-by. Turn back a little drive-by, yeah. So, but this taught him something, Matteo. He saw that Britannia was for real. He needed to prepare better. And over the winter of 54, he planned for a real invasion. He returned in 54 to Britannia with five legions, 2,000 cavalry, landed and went straight for the heart of the... Britain army, which was commanded by a guy named King Cassivellaunus. By the way, these guys, these weren't their actual names in their native tongue. No, right? it can't be. Because they all sound so Yeah, Latin. they sound certain, super Latin. Yeah, they can't be. And 
King Cassivellaunus tried to avoid direct battle with the Romans. He used guerrilla tactics. Why? He didn't, was it, he, didn't he probably outnumber them? Yeah, but the Romans were scary and they were super organized. And this is five legions. Yeah, it's like right? stormtroopers versus and, like Native Americans. Yeah, <laughs> basically. That's exactly right. And so the Britons were more mobile than the Romans. They had horses and chariots. Uh, but they, they made this mistake. They, they tried to pick off a Roman foraging party thinking it would be easy prey. And the Roman foragers organized, fought back, and destroyed the guys that were trying to attack them. And after that, the resistance in Britannia basically collapsed. The tribe submitted to Caesar, and, and he was pretty lenient. He basically said, guys, you're, you are now Roman subjects. That's it for the end of... For the, that's Wait, the, so... Well, not, they that's didn't become Romans, but that's when it... It became a province? Yes, that's exactly So right. it became a province, though? Yes. So yes. after this, it'd be a provincial governor? Uh, after Who was the this, first provincial governor of I don't know if he left a provincial British. governor or if this is, you're now a client state. You know what I mean? Hmm, let's see. I think it was more, now this is a client state of Rome. And Caesar didn't stay for long, Matteo, because he needed to get back across the channel before winter hit and the winter storm season started right, turning guys, up the channel. Well, uh, oh yeah, 78 AD. So he it wouldn't become a province for 100 yeah. years. So... Um, this was a huge publicity boost for Caesar. This, he had just conquered the end of the world for Rome. But there wasn't much money in Britannia, and I found this kind of entertaining. Cicero said the following about this. Uh, Cicero sounds like such a snob. It's also been established that there isn't a scrap of silver in the island and no hope of booty except for slaves. And I don't suppose you're expecting them to know much about literature or music. Oh, he's such a, he's such, I, I, such a punchable guy, you know? <laughs> Yeah, I tend to agree with you. That voice he did was good, by the way. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, it was kind of an, it was annoying me as I did it, but I think that's what he sounded like. So over the next couple of years, Matteo, you have continued Roman advances in Gaul. The Gauls, the resistance of the Gauls was uncoordinated, but it was fierce. In 54 BC, so this is the year that Britannia was conquered by Caesar, the Gauls, under a guy named Sabinus, lured a Roman legion out of their camp uh, through a ruse. They basically said, oh, all of Gaul is rising up against the Romans. Run! And Sabinus led his troops out of camp and he was basically ambushed and, and killed and the entire legion was wiped out in a narrow valley. And there was another incident where the legion being led by Cicero's brother uh, was besieged by Gauls and would have been completely destroyed had Caesar not marched 20 miles a day for I don't know how many days through enemy, enemy territory to arrive just in time to defeat a 60,000-man enemy force. At any rate, Cicero lost 90% of his men. So, in other words, Caesar's been in Gaul for a long time, Matteo, but Gaul is still not Roman. It's not pacified, even though his letters to the Senate might have said otherwise. Hmm. So, after these two defeats, Caesar spent the next year of 53 of inflicting as much pain as possible on the Gauls for what they had done. Like really taking this thing that we've called genocidal to the next level. Right. And he said, guys, Gaul is now a Roman province. <laughs> the <laughs> Senate didn't say that. But no, no, Caesar just said, Gaul is a Roman province and you Gallic people, you barbarians, P-words, are now going to be subject to Roman law. And that was the tipping point, dude. That was the tipping point. The Gauls freaked out. Yeah, because they, now they're taking their lives is one thing, but independence, yeah, exactly. sovereignty? Yes. So, it's time for the last stand of the Gauls. The Averni. Yeah. 
The biggest and the baddest. There was a Gallic tribe, as you said, called the Averni. And the Averni in 62 BC, 52 BC, elected a new king, chose a new king. His name was... Vercingetorix. Vercingetorix. And there's a really cool image, Matteo, on contemporary, a contemporary Roman coin. Uh, or that must be a Gaul, coin of Gaul. Why would the Romans do they that? They invented coins? Yeah. But why, why would they use... Why would they use lion lettering? Well, I, I don't know. I assume that that no that I assume that that was a Roman coin, but now I'm doubting. At any rate, it is a contemporary image of Vercingetorix, which is pretty amazing, and he reminds me of Brennus. I mean, he just looks like a tough dude. Yeah, he has cool hair too. Yeah, he's definitely blonde. Oh yeah, he's blonde. So, as soon as he became king, Vercingetorix sets out to unite the tribes of Gaul. Yeah, like he, he, he just finished watching Braveheart and he's like, hold on. <laughs> he put some blue paint on his face. And yeah, and he's like, freedom. <laughs> so he was a man on a mission. And in the winter of 52, he and Caesar met in a handful of small engagements in which Caesar prevailed. Then Caesar started marching on the headquarters or the home base of the Averni, which is a place called Gergovia. Seeing him come, Vercingetorix destroyed bridges across uh, that crossed the river to the, that Caesar needed to cross in order to get to Gergovia, and Caesar split his forces and sent a decoy marching down river to draw away the Gauls. It worked, and as Vercingetorix chased the decoy, Caesar very quickly rebuilt the bridge, marched his legions across it. Vercingetorix realized he had been duped and retreated to Gergovia, which is another Matteo uh, hilltop. Redoubt, hilltop fortress, right. very easy to defend. Um, you could even call it a moat and bailey. You could call it that. Caesar arrived five days later, and he laid siege to Gergovia, this hilltop fortress. And he scored, the Romans scored a bunch of easy early wins. Uh, so much so that the Roman soldiers started to think that this was going to be a cakewalk. They yeah. started losing a little bit of discipline, Matteo. Underneath These guys ate... Crap. Yeah. What were we worried about? These guys ain't nothing. Yeah. We got this in our sleep with one hand tied behind our back. Vercingetorix. So, so they decided, let's do it with one hand behind our back. <laughs> exactly. And Vercingetorix saw them with one hand behind their back and sallied forth with the full might of his force. The Romans were squabbling with some local allies, another tribe, and he swept out, took the Romans by surprise, Matteo, and won this battle at Gergovia. Now, Caesar claims out of his army of around 40,000, only 1,000 were dead. But modern historians are very skeptical of that number. It must have been higher. It must have because Caesar fled and Caesar acknowledged that he retreated. If it were only 1,000 dead out of 40,000... It wouldn't have been a rout. It wouldn't have been a rout. He wouldn't have retreated. So the number of Roman dead must have been much higher. Caesar retreats, Matteo, and it's at this point that he links up with Labinus. Remember, we talked about Labinus I having defeated the, the Parisi. Yeah. yeah. So uh, he he marches and links up with with Caesar, and together Caesar and Labinus were able to defeat not decisively, but Vercingetorix at another battle. So they're using a very dull knife. Yeah. To cut some thick beef. It, it feels yeah. That's that's well put. Yeah, dull knife, thick beef, and you actually it makes me realize I'm I'm hungry. Me too. Uh, <laughs> at the Battle of Vingen, which is also near Dijon, 
um, it, they were able to win, and that's another highlight for Labinus. I don't think we talked about this battle. Uh, whereupon Vercingetorix retreated, Mateo, to a fateful place, a place known as... A place that would be his grave. Well, not really, but all of his people's graves. Yes. A place called Alessia. Alessia, Alessia was a Gallic Mateo Opidum. Opidum. O-P-P-I-D-U-M. Opidum? Opidum? Maybe. not... But I feel like Opidum would be more... I, I don't know. You may be right. You often are with these hey, things. Hey, Opidum. So, <laughs> I... So this Gallic Apidum, Apidum was a Gallic, it was a, it was a fortified uh, town, basically, located typically on top of a hill, uh, and these spotted France, basically. They were, th- this is uh, the, the hilltop redoubt uh, that of, of the Gauls, and a kind of a classic architectural feature of their society. This town, Alessia, Mateo, Mateo is believed to be on top of Mount Auxois, and if you look on our website, www.lostgermanheroes.com, you get a sense of where it is, more or less equidistant between Lyon and Paris. Right. Uh, Caesar arrived at Alessia Matteo, and he was not going to repeat the mistakes of Gergovia. He was going to take this siege seriously. Right, and he wasn't going to let these little fools sally out. Yeah. He wasn't going to leave himself defenseless, we can no, say. he was not. And this is exactly what Vercingetorix wanted, Matteo. He wanted Caesar to invest the, the town. He wanted Caesar to dig in because he had called for reinforcements, Mateo. He had put out a call, a cross call, to raise another army that would swoop in and trap Caesar and the Romans between two armies, the armies in Alessia and the army, uh, the, the relief army. Right. In the meantime, Caesar starts building, Mateo. Caesar the builder. Wait, but that looks like a fence. Yeah. He starts building a palisaded wall. That looks like you could kick it over. Like uh, that. It does. But this is, there are a couple of different, like, reenactments of it. This one looks like it's done with AI. Matteo's talking about, if you go to our website, there are a couple images of what this palisaded wall might have looked like and, and the moat on the other side of the wall. Uh, I don't think you could kick it over. It must have been quite robust. Uh, maybe this reenactment just isn't accurate, but... It was, Matteo, a palisaded wall 12 feet high with towers every 80 feet. And outside the wall were three 20-foot-wide trenches, one of which he filled with water by diverting a river. The rest were filled with fire-hardened stakes. And he completely surrounded the hilltop fortress of Alessia, Matteo. This is, and we've talked about it, called a circumvallation, a wall that completely encloses uh, a target. And now, Mateo, there were 80,000 Gaul warriors sitting in Alessia, plus the civilian population. So Caesar knew they couldn't last for long if they couldn't forage. Right. Uh, but Vercingetorix, he still wasn't concerned because he knew his allies were on the way. And the Caesar learned of this approaching massive Gaul army that was approaching to relieve uh, Alessia. So he did something truly remarkable. So this was another wall that went around the entire city of Alessia, but it included his original wall in addition to the city. And the Roman army sat between the original wall and what was now an outer wall. So that they, they basically, there's no going back. They trapped themselves it. in it. They're trapped. 
Brisson Gedericks is trapped inside, and Caesar and his legions are trapped between the two walls. Right. In one month, Matteo, he built an estimated 25 miles of walls. Wow. And there's a really cool graphic on a website showing the location of Alessia on the top of the mountain with the, with the elevation, the two rivers that ran past this incredible site. Like they all said, it's not that they had picked a bad place to, to build their, their fortress. It was a great place. And Caesar's two walls. Doesn't that blow you away? That is crazy. Yeah. And Caesar had to build it up uh, big hills. Yeah. It was not easy. Yeah. He had to deal with, with a very challenging terrain. He had to cross rivers. What's this? And up and down mountains. Uh, what is that? I, I guess that's... A cliff? The, no, I, I, I don't know if that's a cliff, actually. That, Mateo's pointing to kind of a, an arc shape. Uh, thing at the base of Alessia, and and that may be part of the defenses of the of the oppidum itself. I, I don't know. So he walled in the entire Roman army, and at some point, Vercingetorix sees that things supplies are running low, so he sent out the old, the women, the infirm, the children, out of his citadel, thinking that Caesar would let them pass. But Caesar didn't. And Vercingetorix didn't let them back in. Damn. Yeah. That's kind of it's kind of messed up by both of them. The women and the infirm and the children always got a bad rap. Completely. Yeah, they always get a bad rap. This was I mean, they were they were playing for keeps. Vercingetorix knew that he was playing for the survival of the independence of Gaul. And he was willing to do it. And they starved. So finally, the Gallic relief force arrived, Matteo. And this was a massive force. You know, I've read estimates of eighty to 100,000 men. It was a ton. Caesar probably had 40,000 men at this point. It was a coalition of a bunch of tribes. Yeah, it was a coalition of a bunch of tribes. And as soon as they arrived, the, the Gauls mounted a combined attack from inside and outside the walls. And that attack failed. So this might have been, this must have been a very solid fortification, much more solid than the image that we have on our website would indicate. The next day, the Gauls found a weak spot in the fortifications, Matteo, and they sent a 60,000-man force to pounce on that weak spot in the walls. I don't know the nature of the weakness. And while they were doing that from without, Vercingetorix was attacking all along the wall, uh, the inside wall. So ferocious was this attack that Caesar sent Labinus with a cavalry to protect that weak spot, Matteo. And it was about to break. So much so that Labinus was about to sally forth, Matteo, because this appeared to be, it was going to be the end. The Gauls were about to break through. And just in the nick of time, Caesar arrived personally with a relief force to come to Labinus's aid. And plug the hole. Plug the hole. Men saw Caesar show up, Matteo, and they had picked up their pylums because they were about to charge out. They put down their pylums, they picked up their swords, and they kept fighting. They were inspired by the presence of Caesar. He does this time and time again. Through his personal valor, he puts himself in harm's way, and he inspires his men to do extraordinary things. Right. Finally, the Gaul, the relief army of the Gauls realized that these siege works were too strong. They were not going to be able to penetrate and they faded away. They left. They left Vercingetorix to his fate. And Vercingetorix realized at this point that there was no winning this war. There was no winning. And he gathered together the chiefs 
of the Gaul tribes in Alessia and said, guys, I can surrender or you can kill me. I'm willing to offer myself as a sacrifice to end this thing. So Caesar, Caesar demanded a full surrender and Vercingetorix marched out Matteo and gave himself up to Caesar. Who did this painting, do you know? Uh, it's definitely not accurate. No, it's most definitely not accurate. Because they would not have a plate curious. Ah, well, they, you know more about what what armor he would have been wearing, or if any at all, right? I don't know if the Gauls even wore armor. Would they wear? Mm, man, I think they maybe they definitely it would be had. I'm not sure. I don't know. I'm not sure. So Mateo's referring to an image that we're posting to I the think website. They had helmets. Uh, yeah, bronze greaves or something like that. This was oh. done at some point in the 1800s or so. Uh, he looks more like a gypsy than he does uh, a, a Gaul. <laughs> he just looks but, like. Yeah, he just looks like he whips up some gnarly music. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, you're right. You're right. At any rate, poor Vercingetorix. He tried to save the Gauls. There was no saving the Gauls at this point. He would be taken back to Rome to march in Caesar's eventual triumph. Actually. And then he would be killed. He looks like he's like a cowboy named Dutch. <laughs> right, he does. Yeah, he hey, looks Dutch. Like, yeah. Sub Dutch? Hey, Dutch. Hey, Dutch. How you doing? Not too much. All right. How you doing? You want some cheese with that? Some cheese on that Dutch. I like some cheese on those potatoes. You, you want some cheese on that Dutch? Yeah. <laughs> that's pretty good. That's pretty good. You know more than me, sister. So that's... <laughs> okay, you're veering You're right. veering off topic there. All right. <laughs> so, Mateo, I feel a little wistful about this because that, that is the end of the free peoples of Gaul. That is the end of the free peoples of Gaul. And you can't blame this guy for what he was trying to accomplish, but they were s- simply no match for Caesar and these veterans that had been fighting for beside him five years plus. for five years plus. Yeah, they were just, they were too tough, too good, too seasoned, too unified, and Caesar was too damn good a commander. That's the end of the Gallic Wars. Damn. So Rome, or more importantly, Caesar had won a six-year or seven-year war that he was never formally authorized to fight. So they didn't recognize it, right? Well, they would wind up recognizing it eventually. Wonder Coast. I don't, you know, good question. We'll see. Let's keep going in the next episode. Maybe we'll see. All right. But regardless, Rome had a massive, massive, super wealthy new province, and it had a very, very, very big problem that it would have to solve. And that problem was called Gaius Julius Caesar. Yep. And we have a big problem, Matteo. Because that is the end of Caesar number two, and we are rolling into number part three, three next week. And it won't even be the finale of Caesar. Uh, you're giving away a little, a little tip that uh, we had. Surprise is Okay, surprise. Yeah, we'll leave, the, we'll leave the surprise. But that's it for Caesar. So just to, to wrap it up, we're ending episode or part two on Caesar with Caesar sitting outside the double-walled palisade beneath Alessia, triumphant, with news winging its way back to the Senate in Rome about what had happened. And you can imagine that news will be received. Some people will find it to be the best news ever, and others will see the birth or the threat of a tyrant. Yeah? It happened to Sulla when he came back from the east. It happened to Pompey when he came back from the east. Hey, it even happened to Scipio Africanus when he came back from defeating Carthage. It did. People fear what they can't be. People, yes, you're right. People fear what they can't be. And nobody at this stage 
in the history of Rome had done what Caesar did could be Julius Caesar. And I think we'll end it, Matteo, right here. And we'll pick it up again next week with part three of Caesar and truly momentous. What? Truly momentous. Well, I'll just put it this way. Yeah. There's a river. And there's there's a conquering general. And there's no turning back. And there's no turning back next week. So to our listeners, say Alia acta est. Alia acta est. To our listeners, thank you so much. Hopefully we're making the Caesar thing work and worthwhile. And we love having you along for the journey. We will speak to you again next week. Thank you.